Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. We know that artificial intelligence is going to make us way more productive, and it's also going to eliminate a lot of jobs. But we don't know how much more productive or how many jobs. We can only speculate as to the effect of AI on the job market or whether these innovations will finally get us out of our current productivity slump. But these questions, while difficult, are extremely important, and I'm delighted to discuss them with Eric Brynjolfsson. Eric is the director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy, where he examines the effect of information technologies on the economy. He's also the author of several books, including Machine Platform Crowd and The Second Machine Age, both of which he co-authored with Andrew McAfee. Eric, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here, Jim. Do you think we are living in an age of rapid technological change and with this one qualifier that's meaningful? It's not trivial that we're living in a, where the change itself is important. I have no doubt that that's the case. Um, you know, it's hard for me to think of anything that's as important as intelligence. I mean, that's that's really fundamental. And if we're around a uh, hundred or a thousand years from now, I think we'll look back at this as when machines started becoming intelligent. So yeah, that's a very big deal. Do you think that is an opinion which is generally held? Uh, it may be held in Silicon Valley. But I think a lot of people, you know, as you know, there's a lot of talk about the stagnation of the economy, Yes, uh, that you know things aren't as good as they used to be. Um, there's certainly been books which have really, uh, I think, uh, not, not critical, but they diminish the value of the kind of technological change you might be talking about. It's just sort of information technology and that's not that important. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you see that's different that they're not seeing? Well, you know, there are opinions of lots of different things, but you gotta look at the facts. And the facts are that there's some very core capabilities um, like vision, that's very fundamental. Uh, machines used to not be able to recognize images very well, maybe 70% on data sets like ImageNet. Now they're 95, 97, 98%, you know, better than most humans at recognizing different breeds of dogs or jaguars or leopards, you know, still room to improve voice recognition, another, you know, understanding speech. We're in this unusual 10 year period where machines used to not be able to really understand speech. And now a lot of us routinely, you know, talk to Siri or Alexa or Google now, and, and you know, there's not sophisticated conversations, but basically we can ask them to do simple things and they'll do it. And that's only getting better. And then lots of decision-making, you know, whether it's uh, diagnosing cancer from uh, medical images or making decisions on lots of things from credit to where to place ads to who gets parole. Um, there are machines that are getting better and better at all of those. Now, I want to be very clear. There are some huge risks with each of those applications and biases. And perhaps the core of the, the paradox, the productivity paradox, is that these impressive capabilities have not yet translated into significant improvements in productivity. Um, maybe we'll get into this more later, but you know, just to, to support the other side or the concern, productivity growth has actually slowed. We used to grow about 
one, you know, two, 2.8%, I think was the number between the late 90s and, and 2004. And then it dropped to about 1.3% since then, even uh, last quarter, as we do this podcast, the last quarter that was reported, I think was actually negative productivity growth in the United States. And that's a worldwide phenomenon. Most countries have seen a productivity slowdown. So I think that's the reason that people are questioning. Well, I, th- I think they'll say that all the things that you've just mentioned, while they may be impressive, they just don't add up to very much. And certainly not to something that makes us feel like our living standards are, are I mean, they're not, you know, they're not the combustion engine. Uh, they're not uh, electricity. They're uh, our discovery, you know, electrification. And they're, they're not, they're not some miracle cure that's going to, that, that, that have radically extended our lives or made our lives, made us healthier. They just very interesting, but not, not big, not, the, not big. Let me actually, let me, yeah, let me well, read well, it. Yeah. I, I, let me, yeah, yeah, let, let me, oh, let me, I mean, you mentioned electricity and, and some of these other um, breakthroughs, you know, as, as you know, Jim, um, when we've talked about this, um, those are looking back, nobody would doubt those were big breakthroughs, but at the time they didn't lead to productivity gains either. It was about 30 to 40 years before you saw productivity gains from the electrification of factories. And, and that's the nub of the issue. Um, there are a number of reasons we see this disconnect between what I see as impressive mm-hmm core capabilities and very disappointing economic and productivity growth. And they're not that the technology is unimpressive. It's that we aren't translating them. Um, and I, you know, it's not just us future, ge- f- sorry, past generations also had difficulty translating breakthrough technologies. It's very common that um, it could take a decade, two decades, three decades before it turns into real productivity growth. So, this is not unusual. This is something, you know, we, I've written a couple papers, one called AI and the Modern Productivity Paradox that looks at this, another one called the Productivity J-Curve that calibrates it and shows that, um, that what we're seeing right now is not unusual. Let me read a, uh, a quote, um, uh, which I, I think it's, it's from a Republican Senator, Josh Hawley, but uh, I, I, this, this opinion isn't limited to him. I, 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 you certainly hear it from other people, left, right, but let me just read it. He said, he wrote this, I think, in, a, in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a few months ago. Men landed on the moon 50 years ago, a tremendous feat of American creativity, courage, and not least technology. The tech discoveries made in the space race powered innovation for decades. But I wonder 50 years on what the tech industry is giving America today. There was a time when innovation meant something grand and technology meant something hopeful. And we dreamed of going to the stars and beyond of curing diseases and creating new ways to travel and make things. Those uh, are the dreams that fuel the American future. Those are the dreams we need to dream again. And I think what he's suggesting is that's, that's not what the tech industry, whether it's the American tech industry or, or more broadly, they don't do that kind of stuff anymore. It, 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 do you think that's just that's underestimating the potential of the kinds of advances you're seeing? Well, let me start by saying I, I share his disappointment and concern. I mean, raising productivity is absolutely critical, and we're not translating a lot of these technologies into improvements in living standards. So he's absolutely right about that. But the problem is not in the and the core technologies. Those are as fundamental as anything we've ever seen, maybe more fundamental in terms of the breakthroughs. Again, intelligence, being able to have vision, voice recognition, diagnosing diseases, and soon machines that can do increasingly dexterous things. 
those are really, really big deals. But our society is not translating them. And, and part of it is that um, entrepreneurship is actually down. There's more occupational licensing. I have a paper just coming out about how uh, that's been bogging things down. And it just takes time for companies to reinvent their business processes, their organizations, uh, the way they do business. That is something we need to work on. The bottleneck is there, not in the core technologies. I mean, I'd be all for more, even more breakthroughs in the core technologies. But if you want to speed productivity growth, what we do need to do most of all is do a better job of translating the technologies that we have into new products, services, organizational forms, and ultimately now, higher living standards. Now, one of the bottlenecks you've written about recently, um, you call it human genius. Yeah. We have a genius shortage. What does that mean? Well, you know, to, to step back a bit, most economics looks at two inputs to production, labor and capital. And the funny thing is that the sad thing is that the returns to labor, vanilla labor, are down. As you know, median wages are, are, are stagnating. We haven't seen the kind of wage growth we saw earlier. But also, returns to capital are down. The interest rates are, are near all-time lows. Uh, real interest rates may even be negative. So where's what's going on? And, and the way we model it, Seth Benzel and I model it, is mm -hmm. that there's a third factor that is the, is the bottleneck. Um, we don't exactly know what it is. One interpretation of it is, is genius. The people who know how to take these new technologies and translate them into new products, you know, the, the Bezoses of the world, um, and all the, the people that want to immigrate to Silicon Valley and Boston and elsewhere um, that bring new ideas, and the people in America who are inventing these new ideas, um, the more of those we have, the better we'll be able to translate. Uh, so, another so, interpretation- what, But is, is it- Second, just, the other interpretation, which is, I yeah, think is, okay. also, is just that, that there's intangible capital and um, business processes that need to be reinvented. And if we're stuck with the old ones, these uh, that slow change prevents us from uh, really allowing capital and labor to be as productive as they otherwise would be. So is it that we, we do not have enough people generating big innovations or we have a lot of innovation coming, but we, we lack the skill to use it in a productive way. Uh, we lack the managerial skill. Some companies certainly seem to have it and they, those companies seem to be doing very, very well. Their stocks right. keep going up. They become trillion dollar companies, but there's just not enough of that know-how to go around right now. Yeah, I think it's mostly the latter. I mean, let's take, let's take Amazon. So in the early 90s, we all looked at them and said, wow, the internet's amazing. We're gonna have all this uh, online shopping and, and B2B. Um, and people, it wasn't, you didn't have to be a genius to see that there was huge potential, but actually translating that into, into changing the way people shop takes a long time. Here we are, what, 25 years later, and um, electronic commerce is still, depending on how you measure it, single digits, low double digits of total commerce. It's beginning to really cut into traditional retailing, but it takes a while for us to reinvent just something as, as straightforward as shopping. Is this an indictment of our education system that we're unable to produce the kinds of workers and I guess really high level workers and managers that we need to take full advantage of these technologies? Well, indictment is a harsh word. I, I would maybe flip it around and say it's an opportunity that if we were able to do a better job of uh, and invested more in education, we could loosen that bottleneck if we had more creative people, more people who worked in teams, 
uh, more people who knew how to translate technology into just, every, every, everyone should be a double major in computer science. They don't have to be. Well, it, well let me just say it, it would help to have both <laughs> a, some knowledge of the technology and skills. You know, Steve Jobs famously, you know, had a strong art side, but also a technology side. Um, but I don't think everyone has to be like that. I think that there's um, value in in thinking very creative ways without being a tech uh, genius and being and, and working with other humans in different kinds of skills. Human capital is uh, probably the, the the biggest bottleneck right now. And I think most economists would, would agree with me that that's an opportunity. And that's at all levels, uh, K through 12, university, uh, lifelong learning, and we could do better. Um, so you can either like, you know, sort of the build, build or buy proposition. We can either sort of build it, which is we can educate the people who are here, or we can sort of bring it in. But that that part's important too. I'm not, you know, bringing yeah. in high yeah. skill, uh, sort of very talented people. That's been super important in the past. Are you concerned that won't that won't be happening in the future? Yes, and and I'm glad you brought the past because you know the way that America, you know, this is a mainly American audience, but everyone can learn from it, has in, been a world leader in education and a world leader in immigration. It's been a talent magnet for uh, smart people from around the world, and. I believe in the O-ring theory that Michael Kramer described and got a Nobel Prize in part four, which is that smart people make other smart people more productive. Um, it, they don't reduce the wages of our own engineers. They increase their wages by making it possible to build even more amazing products. So we need to work on both sides. Uh, we need to invest more in our education. We were always the world leader in America, and we need to continue to be a talent magnet. What do you think the demand for labor in this country looks like 25 or 50 years uh, from now? I, I don't think you have to go all the way to the robots take all the jobs theory well, uh, to think that it could be it could be it could be different or it could be it could be less without the robots taking all the jobs. Yeah, I think the time scale makes a huge difference. When I look at the next five, 10, probably 20 years. There's no shortage of work that only humans can do. I look around at what machines can do, and they can't do most of the creative work. They can't do the interpersonal work, the stuff that requires the human touch, even most work that requires dexterity. So uh, there's lots of things in healthcare, childcare, cleaning the environment, the arts and sciences, entrepreneurship that only humans can do. And we need to repurpose people into those kinds of opportunities and uh, that's what I see as the big opportunity for the next you know, few decades. That said, you turn the dial far enough into the future, and I don't know whether it's 50 years or 100 years. Um, I can imagine a time when machines can do most of those things that I just listed, uh, but that's not the challenge for today. And I, I sometimes worry that we, we jump too far into that science fiction future. For today, we have lots of work that only humans can do. Well, I'm also worried that people are sort of, you know, looking too far in the future and they're and they look at today's technologies and then you hear people talking about things like robot taxes and we need to sort of slow down the pace of technological change are you concerned about about that kind of tech lash not so much you've heard usually yeah. we hear the phrase tech lash to people who you know pay attention to this sort of thing that you know we need to break up big technology companies that kind of thing there's also a different kind of tech lash that will just sort of try to slow down the pace of technological change are you concerned about that I'm very concerned, um, you know, but some of it is justified because we haven't been as careful about using the technology to create widely shared prosperity or for that matter, to create fairness, 
privacy, uh, and, and other things that are being eroded by some of the technologies today. These tools are more powerful than anything we've ever had before. And by definition, that means we have more power to change the world. So we need to think carefully about how we want to change the world. It would be a huge mistake to assume the machines will automatically do the right thing or they can only create good outcomes. Um, too often, the machines have been used to create more concentration of wealth or to uh, erode privacy, to amplify biases. But it doesn't have to be that way. So the tech lash serves a purpose if it helps us point these powerful tools in the right direction. If the tech lash simply slows down progress, though, then that's going to be very damaging. Then people won't be saved from cancer the way they could be, and poverty won't be alleviated the way it could be, and our living standards won't rise as fast as they could. So let's make sure we take this tech lash and, and channel it towards using technology to create more benefits for the world and not simply slowing down progress. Earlier on, we were talking about productivity growth, and uh, despite the, uh, the, the perception that we live in a time of rapid technological change, you don't sort of see it in the numbers. Uh, and you've, you've also done some research to trying to, you know, maybe there's a better way of looking at and determining the value of sort of the kinds of things being generated by a digital economy, right. these sorts of, you know, free goods, you know, search and, 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 and social media. Uh, just maybe take a minute or two and talk about sort of your work there and sort of what you've, what you've discovered and how perhaps we should, we can measure economic growth and productivity growth more accurately in the future. One of the great, perhaps unsung inventions of the 20th century was the concept of GDP and the national accounts that Simon Kuznets developed. But it needs to be updated and we need additions for the 21st century. In particular, um, GDP doesn't measure things that don't have a positive price. If something's free, it counts zero. Wikipedia, Google Maps, lots of other things. So if we want to measure the benefits we're getting from those, we need an alternative metric. And we've developed something with my team here at MIT, Avi Kallis in particular, um, called GDP-B, where the B stands for measuring the benefits, not the costs. And what we've done is looked at how much you'd have to pay somebody to give up some of these things I mentioned, Wikipedia or Maps or uh, Facebook. And you often have to pay them quite a bit to give it up for a month. In other words, they're getting a lot of value for it, even if they aren't paying for it. When you add these numbers up, it adds up to hundreds of billions, even trillions of dollars of unmeasured value. And of course, that mismeasurement is only getting worse as more and more of the economy becomes digitized and we all benefit from more free goods and services. What do you want to see government do? We mentioned education a little bit earlier and immigration. What do you want to see government do to sort of help workers who may uh, be, be buffeted by some of these changes? And what do you want to see government do to sort of even accelerate the pace of innovation faster? I got to say, this is one of the most frustrating things for me is I see these amazing technologies and they are breathtaking, especially if you get up close to them. And then I see that on the government side, we're almost going backwards. Things are worse and worse. We aren't uh, unleashing them the way we could. Uh, there are there are a half dozen things we can do, and I mentioned these in my in my book, Second Machine Age, with Andrew McAfee and, and other writings. Um, let me just list them quickly, and then I can dive in deeper. So the top of the list is education, reinventing that, not just spending more. Second, I would put entrepreneurship. It has slowed. We need to make it easier for people to re recombine technologies with labor and capital to do new things and. Uh, we actually have fewer startups and, and, and less of that than we used to, believe it or not. 
Um, a third thing is investing in innovation directly through R&D. I like um, uh, Simon Johnson and Jonathan Gruber's idea of these innovation hubs. Rokana has picked up on that. Um, but just directly investing in R&D, we're doing it less of it now than we used to as a nation. Uh, fourthly, I would mention immigration, uh, bringing more smart people together so they can create great things for each other. It's good for America. I think it's good for the world that when people can freely move and connect with each other and, and work on breakthrough ideas. And then finally, I, I wouldn't leave out things we can do to, to make the tax code fairer, to uh, distribute wealth more evenly. It, it's very unevenly balanced right now. Things like the earned income tax credit are very appealing to me because they help people at the low end of the wage scale while also encouraging them to stay in the labor force. Also, you know, we've really been very unbalanced in terms of how we tax labor and capital. Um, having low rates on capital and much higher rates, higher and higher rates on labor. And that's probably exactly backwards. My colleague, Daron Asamoglu, has shown that if anything, the optimal tax code would have somewhat higher rates on capital than labor. But I would say at least let's try and even them out and, and, and level the playing field and, and not favor entrepreneurs who put people out of work by replacing them with capital. Um, every once in a while, I'll uh, go on uh, Twitter before an interview like this, and I'll ask people for questions. And this, is, I thought, was a pretty good question. Uh, I, I, I assume it will be factually accurate. If it isn't, let me know. But here's the question uh, directed toward you. Um, you were at Davos recently. What do the Davos goers not understand about AI and its effect on the economy that they should? You know, it, it, the Davos goers, with all due respect to them, like a lot of people have just have a very naive understanding and they fall into to two camps. There's one group that thinks AI is like magic, you know, this artificial general intelligence like you see with the Terminator um, and that will soon replace all the jobs. And as we said earlier, we're very far from that if ever. And then there's another group that, that sees the disappointing productivity growth and said, oh, AI is really nothing new, we can ignore it. Um, both of them are wrong in opposite directions. And there's a huge disruption underway already that is going to uh, uh, surprise a lot of people, but it's not going to create mass unemployment. My guest today has been Eric Brynjolfsson. Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. Absolutely. My pleasure. Mm -hmm.